Zamperini. Uh, Louis was an Olympic runner in, in 1936 in Berlin. A few years later, he entered World War II and fought heroically in the Pacific. He survived a a plane crash over the ocean, survived being stranded for, I think, weeks in shark-infested water, had to be very creative and very resilient to to get fresh water and food from this little makeshift raft, and only to be rescued uh, by none other than the enemy, the Japanese. He was imprisoned in this POW camp that was led by this very cruel, very violent, sadistic monster of a man. The other prisoners in in Louis had a nickname for their captor. They called him the bird. Surviving a plane crash and surviving um, being lost at sea were bad enough. Took tremendous courage, tremendous fortitude to survive those conditions, but for Louis, Nothing compared with the conditions of surviving that POW camp. It, it messed him up. Like a lot of other soldiers coming back from war, the, the level of trauma from war changes you. The, the Louis who went off to war was very different from the Louis he, who came back from, from war. So after the uh, the victory parades and the celebrations kind of uh, subsided, Louis Louis had vivid, gripping nightmares every night. Decades later, he said, I looked good, had my weight back, but I had nightmares. I'd always wake up wringing wet. I thought I was strangling the bird, his captor. I honestly wanted to go back to Japan and secretly find and kill him before I'd be satisfied. Let me ask you, can any one of us blame him? In his very famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How does a a guy like Louis love a guy, forgive a guy like his captor, the bird? 2,900 years ago, an empire with a similar sadistic reputation was on the rise called the the Assyrians. And one of the Assyrian kings, uh, Shalmaneser III, would have these huge relief panels to display how the Assyrians would would, uh, literally dismember um, the bodies of their defeated enemies. (laughs) There's a lot of grisly details um, that I could share with a uh, let's just say, more mature audience. Um, but out of consideration for all those little ones among us, I won't. The Assyrians were monsters. They were the definition of a terrorist state, inciting fear in the whole known world. And the world despised them. Everyone hated their guts. One of their strategies with the surrounding weaker nations was to threaten them unless they gave them money. They were like, the, they were like a, a mafia, godfather type. They were like a school bully who, who threatens to beat up the weaker kids unless they give them the, the, their lunch money. And this is exactly what had been going on for decades in Israel during the life of Jonah, the prophet. 
Well, this, this week, as we're going through this little series, um, kind of examining the, the lives of Old Testament characters, we're, we're, we're going to look at Jonah and the mission God gave him to this same bully, the bully of Assyria. Most of us think of uh, one thing when we think of Jonah. What is it? Yeah, the whale, right? How could anyone survive three days in the belly of a fish? So quick side note. Probably some of you saw this. It was all over the news earlier this month. I think it happened on June 11th. Um, A lobster diver off the coast of Cape Cod, and uh, I didn't know this, but lobster divers are... They, they don't catch lobsters in a trap. They literally go down to the bottom of the floor and pick them up. Well, this lobster diver got swallowed by a humpback whale. So his, his name is Captain Michael Packard. He was in the whale ab- about 30 seconds. And uh, listen to what he says. All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove and the next thing I knew, I was, it was completely black. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth. I was completely inside. It was completely black. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. So he, he then proceeds to shake the, the whale's head from inside the mouth. The whale didn't like that so much and it surfaced and ejected him, vomited him. Well, he he lived to tell about it, but without any bruises, without a single broken bone. That's amazing, right? For a lot of people, the, the story of Jonah gets reduced to a fable, reduced to a myth because of this part. Tim Keller writes in his book, uh, Rediscovering Jonah, also has the name, The Prodigal Prophet. He says, if you accept the existence of God and the resurrection of Christ, a far greater miracle, then there's nothing particularly, particularly difficult about reading Jonah literally. After hearing about the recent lobster diver, I thought, hmm, I could see God doing that. So Jonah was a prophet, and when we think of prophet, we might think of people who, who have this gift of being able to see into the future and talk, to talk about it. And, and yes, sometimes prophecy involved warnings or promises from God about the future, but the future wasn't the main thing. The main role of any prophet was to represent God's character to God's people and to the nations. The main role of a, the main purpose of a, of a prophet was to represent God's character to God's people and to the nations. So the first and only to other time Jonah gets mentioned is in 2 Kings 14. You don't have to go there. Uh, it was during the, the, the reign of Jeroboam the second, who was a very wicked king. And Jonah was on his side. He prophesied in his favor, promising he'd win a battle and regain territory he had lost toward the north of Israel. Why? Um, Oh, uh, but Amos, a faithful prophet, promised that he would lose that battle 
and not regain that ter territory. Why? Be because Jeroboam II had rebelled against God. So Jeroboam lost, and Jonah had egg on his face. Jonah had failed to represent God's character to God's people, period. So if he failed at that, how do you think he'll do when he's called to represent God's character to a people not belonging to God? For that, the book of Jonah. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It's about four chapters. I'd highly encourage you to, to read it. Um, I read it with my community group. Uh, we studied it uh, this spring. It's a great book. Um, I, I will uh, cover the, the climax of the, of the book, which comes in the last chapter. The book is a literary masterpiece. I'm serious. Filled with po po poetry, um, symmetry, chock full of irony, chock full of comedy. It's a satire. At every turn, the non-Israelite people honor God, while the man of God, Jonah, does not. And Jonah is really presented to us like a clown. So the book begins with, with God calling Jonah. Jonah, um, chapter 1, first couple verses. Now the, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So these atrocities had, had brought people to their knees, and they begged God to put an end to them. So God calls Jonah to, to the capital city of the people everyone hates, Nineveh. But instead of going in that direction, Jonah boards a ship and heads as far away as you could possibly get from Nineveh. Why did he run? Why did Jonah run? That's the big question. The author doesn't tell us yet. That comes in chapter 4. For now, you know, we're, we're left wondering. Was he afraid? I would be. I mean, what, what he had been called to do would be the equivalent of, of going into Nazi Germany in 1941 in the city of Berlin and preaching, saying, repent, for the wrath of God is against you. Pretty scary. Or was he filled with hatred for that country of Assyria? So Jonah boards this ship, heading as far away from Nineveh, uh, Nineveh, heads down to where they store the cargo, and takes a long nap. Well, God and his sovereignty sends a huge storm. Wants to wake him up. Meanwhile, Jonah's sleeping and sleeping. Sailors are not. Note the contrast. They're at the end of their rope. They're crying out to their gods. Hey, what, what gives, gods? Uh, the, the captain finally comes and, and finds Jonah asleep, and he says in, in verse 6, chapter 1, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your god. Perhaps the god will give you 
give a thought to us that we may not perish. Well, there's no indication that Jonah does. There's no indication that he prays. The storm keeps getting worse and worse because finally the sailors did what everyone did in the ancient world in a situation like this. You cast lots. You, you um, do the equivalent of drawing straws. Well, guess who draws the short straw? Jonah. And the captain of the ship says, who are you? Where do you come from? And jo- Jonah sort of levels with them. He says, fellas, I'm a Hebrew. I fear Yahweh, the God who made the sea and the land, and and it's because of me that the storm has come. Throw me overboard, and the sea will be quiet for you. Now, um, this this sounds um, courageous, sounds honest, but but it's really selfish. it's, It's really foolish. What better way to avoid going to Nineveh than to be hurled into the sea? The sea that Jonah had just said God made. (laughs) Meanwhile, note the contrast here. For Jonah's sake, the the sailors keep rowing harder and trying harder than ever to to reach land, but they couldn't. The, the, The wind was coming straight at the ship. The storm kept raging harder and harder, so they, they offered a final prayer to Yahweh, to the Lord, regretting what they were about to do and tossed him over, overboard. And instantly, the sea became still. Well, this got their attention. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Note again, the contrast. These non-Israelite men came to know him and worshipped him. Jonah did not. Well, just as God in his sovereignty appointed that huge storm, God appointed, appointed a huge fish to swallow Jonah up. And that got Jonah's attention. So in chapter 2, we finally hear the words spoken by Jonah to God from the belly of the fish. He says, he says some pretty nice things. <laughs> but something is clearly missing. Something along the lines of, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for going in the opposite direction as you wanted. Thanks for being so merciful and so gracious. I didn't deserve it. If you give me another chance, I will gladly represent you and your character to the people of Nineveh. But he doesn't say that. He's he's grateful that God has saved him, but he doesn't repent. He doesn't apologize. He doesn't show humility. He doesn't show, show brokenness. And that's because God's grace wasn't real to him. Well, despite this, God chooses to give him another chance. The fish vomited him out like that um, lobster, lobster guy. God starts over. 
And uh, notice the, the, the pairing of chapter one, beginning of chapter one, and the beginning of chapter three. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Well, this time, Jonah obeys. But, very reluctantly. It's like telling your, your, your uh, son to uh, apologize to his sister. Say you're sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Jonah, uh, chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. In the original Hebrew, that's a five-word sermon. Make you envious? <laughs> nothing about what, what the Lord will do if they obey. Nothing about um, uh, how the Lord is gracious and merciful for those who obey him. No, it's almost as if, it, it's almost as if Jonah's trying to sabotage his own message. It's almost like he made up his mind, oh, I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll preach repentance. Well, despite this, God works through his message. Everyone from the king down to the lowest servant tore their clothes in satin ashes, a sign of their repentance that they had truly been humbled. These guys were humbled, broken, unlike Jonah. So that brings us to chapter four. Remember the, the big question we started. Why, why did Jonah run? We're about to find out as we watch four-year-old Jonah pitch a tantrum in the middle market basket. So chapter four, verses, verses one to the end. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was made when when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is for it is better for me to die than to, to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what should become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? 
And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? That's where it ends. Ends with a question. Well, there are three reasons we see why Jonah ran away from the mission. Real quick. Number one, he had a small view of God's character. The man who was called to represent God's character didn't know his character. Jonah wanted justice, no mercy for a people who were so cruel. So he mockingly takes the famous words God revealed about himself to Moses on Sinai in Exodus 34 and says, which are, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression in sin, dot, dot, dot. Come back to that. It's as if Jonah is saying, I knew this would happen. This is, this is so you. I wanted your wrath to pour down on these people, but you had to relent, didn't you? God, you're such a pushover. You're such a, um, you're like a husband who keeps on putting up with a, a cheating wife, or like a, a father who keeps on putting up with ungrateful kids. I'm sick of it. Well, Jonah had a shallow understanding of the full character of God. God is full of grace and truth. God wants nothing more than our love and our humility. He wants us to confess our various forms of rebellion toward him and, and be healed. That's his default mode. The Psalms often speak of God being right-handed. Psalm 98, his right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Salvation is on his right hand, but he won't wait forever. Nevertheless, God relented because Nineveh repented. That's his character. That's his character that... Jonah needed to wake up to. Number two, he had a small view of his own need for grace. He had a small view of his own need for grace. If you look again at the verse Jonah throws back in God's face, uh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, now look at the second half of that verse Jonah fails to mention. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. 
What Jonah failed to see was his own need for grace, his own need for mercy. Anytime we say, well, well, at least I'm not as bad as those people, we're failing to see our, our need for grace every time. Every time you catch yourself saying that, ooh, <laughs> a little bell should go off in your brain. We all stand on some foundation of acceptance by someone, whether it's a spouse, a kid's, a work, our winning personality, or a combination of those things. And in Jonah's case, that foundation was his nation. Remember his response to the sailors when they peppered him with questions about who he was. First thing he says, I am, uh, I am a Hebrew. <laughs> Interesting. C.S. Lewis um, fought in World War I. It was a brutal war. He lost many friends in that war. He loved his country. Just like I love America. I, I'm grateful for the sacrifices made to secure our freedom. I really am. So there's absolutely a place for patriotism. But there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism, or as, as it's been called, jingoism. Patriotism sees the nation with its glories and its flaws. Nationalism is blind to the flaws. So in his book, The The Four Loves, Lewis adds a funny picture which illustrates this point really well. He says, I once ventured to, to say to an old clergyman who was voicing this sort of patriotism, but sir, aren't we told that every people thinks its own men the bravest and its own women the fairest in the world? He replied with total gravity. He could not have been uh, graver if he had been saying the creed at the altar. Yes, but in England, it's true. (laughs) In another place, uh, in that same chapter, Lewis writes, we all know now that this love becomes a demon when it becomes a god. That was Jonah's foundation. His basis for acceptance, his true foundation was not the grace of God, but his nation. The truth is, we've all been unfaithful to God, every one of us. From one degree to another, we've all been prodigal sons and daughters at some point in time but we can be blind to our need, blind to the need of every person on the planet. We needed a a Messiah, a, a Savior. We needed a Savior who would see us in all of our rebellion, in all of our unloveliness, in order to make us lovely, in order to make us acceptable. And that's exactly what Jesus has done. Ephesians 2. Tim had this up last week. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Life is full of storms. And Jesus says, unless, unless you build your life on me, those storms are going to wreck you. But if you build your life on me, if you build your life on my grace, if you build your life on the gospel, the gospel that says it's not about what you've done or haven't done, it's all about what I have done for you, you'll not only survive, but thrive. There is an incredible sense of freedom and joy and peace that comes when you're, when you're standing on the right foundation. And, and this is what ended the nightmares for Louis. He came to know Jesus and his need for mercy in a real, tangible way. And that same grace filled him with compassion and love for even his former captor. He said in an interview, I, I felt this perfect calm, a peace. The Bible calls it the peace that passes all understanding. I knew, that, I knew then that I was through getting drunk, smoking, chasing around. I also knew I'd forgiven all my prison guards, including the bird. Boy, that's something. So I got up, went home, and that was the first night in four years that I didn't have a nightmare. And I haven't had one since. Isn't that incredible? Jonah had a small view of God's character, a small view of his own need for grace. Lastly, he had a small, he had small joys in life. This is what having a small view of God's character does. It, it leads to having a small view of grace. And, and when we have a small view of grace, it leads to small joys. The one thing that Jonah, that Jonah got jollies out of was that plant. It's kind of weird. <laughs> it wasn't the sailors that came to know God. It wasn't the Ninevites who came to realize, oh my gosh, what have we done? What have we become? And they tore their, rose, their robes and sat in ashes. No, 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 it wasn't that. It was this plant. I'm seeing myself in this. The plant of Netflix. The plant of making sure my finances are all squared away. The, the plant of you know, preparing well for the future, the plant of some home project, blah, blah, blah. Small joys. They're fine, but they don't, they haven't, they take a seat in my heart. They, sh they shouldn't. 
To point to another illustration of C.S. Lewis, we're like kids playing in mud puddles in, the, in a slum when God's offering us a beach vacation. Our, he says, our desires are not too weak. No, 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 I'm sorry. Our desires are not too strong, but too weak. So, uh, just a few questions for you. These are from the Bible Project. Their reflection on the book of Jonah. Number one, who's someone in your life right now that you struggle to love? Could be a neighbor, could be a family member, could be a coworker, whatever. Who is, who is it that is hard to love? Number two, can, can you picture this person from God's perspective? How does he see them with compassion? Number three, what is one way you can join God's, join God's perspective and really show love toward that person today? You know, I often wonder, who, who wrote the book of Jonah? Was it a person who had heard the story? Was it, I mean, there... We have no indication that there were any witnesses. So I know this is pure conjecture, but I, I think Jonah wrote it. At, at some point, Jonah got God's grace. He finally saw his need for it, embraced it through faith, and sat down and wrote this little story in order that we too would grow in grace in order that we too would grow in compassion, grow in mercy toward others, even our enemies, in order that we too would grow in our mission to take this great news of the gospel into our neighborhoods, cities, into the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord, 